Today, I'm going to start with a story about a middle-aged man. We'll call him Carlos. Carlos trudged through one of the back streets of his town, hoping to close one more deal before the end of the day. A trickle of sweat inched its way down his back, but in the narrow laneway there was not a breath of breeze to be had. As he waded through the stagnant air, a wave of longing washed over him, longing for the seaside days of his childhood. His mind wandered back to the humble fishing village where he had grown up and to the vast and beautiful ocean. It crossed his mind to wonder whether he had learned to swim before he walked. So at home was he in the sea. His effortless swimming stroke carried him through the waves to the place where the dolphins played and to the rock where he could watch for his father's fishing boat to come in. And it carried him down, deep down to the seabed, where a whole new landscape could be found. He remembered a day a man he didn't know stood on the shore watching him dive. He came up to Carlos, handed him a net bag, and asked him to bring back some oysters, and he promised to pay him for any that had pearls in them. The amount he offered had seemed huge to the young boy, and he put his diving skills to work. The first time the man pried open one of the shells and showed him a pearl, Carlos was spellbound. Here, here was all the beauty of the sea distilled into a single drop. Naturally, he eagerly dove for more. Soon, other buyers of pearls started coming to the beach. Carlos watched them carefully, noting which features of his catch attracted more interest. He started to keep the best pearls for himself and took them directly to the jewelry maker. Soon he had other boys doing the diving for him, and he was running a flourishing business. Success and great wealth followed in rapid succession. He built a beautiful house on the hill filled with sea breezes and the murmur of the surf. He married his beloved Elena, and life was good. But that was before before the bitter disappointment of being unable to have children, and before the cruel disease that robbed Elena of her strength and then of her life. He trudged on and wondered, not for the first time, why he even bothered. Habit, he supposed, and the satisfaction of doing something that he was good at, but it all felt hollow. As he stepped up to the jeweler's door, he was startled. He wiped his eyes with a gritty hand, unable to believe what he was viewing. It was the most beautiful pearl he had ever seen. But then maybe it was just the sun's reflection on the shop window that he was catching. He hurried inside. When he saw it before him, under the bright lamps of the jeweler's counter, he found himself beginning to weep. It was large, though he'd certainly seen larger ones, 
but it was the quality that had him captivated. Perfectly round, with an unblemished surface. It was white, but fleeting hints of violet and azure played below the surface. He thought back to that first pearl that had so moved him. In retrospect, it had been quite plain. But here, he knew with certainty, here was all of the beauty of the sea distilled into one tiny, perfect orb. He asked the price and stumbled out of the shop, having completely forgotten the business that had brought him there. He knew that any value placed on that pearl was arbitrary. It was truly priceless. But if he sold everything he had, he could meet the seller's price. So he did. Six months later, in the humble fisherman's shed he grew up in, he makes tea and waits for the sun to burst through the surface of the sea because it is in that first morning light that his pearl is most beautiful. Later he will swim out to meet the dolphins and he will look for the colors of his pearl in the surface of the timeless sea. And then he will watch for the evening light because maybe it's in that light that his pearl really is most beautiful. We're doing a series on the parables that Jesus told, and some of you will have recognized the parable of the pearl merchant. Here's how Matthew records it. Jesus said, God's kingdom is like a jewel merchant on the hunt for exquisite pearls. Finding one that is flawless he immediately sells everything and buys it. Obviously, I've taken a lot of liberty in fleshing out the backstory. I did that because I've struggled to make sense of such an extravagant investment. At first glance, it's an odd little story. It stands apart from the other parables. Odd because of the seeming disconnect between the notion of the kingdom that Jesus is launching and a precious stone. Most of his kingdom parables make a more obvious connection. For example, parables that talk about growth, like the yeast in the flour or the wheat among the weeds. We can relate it to a kingdom, one that is flourishing and growing even despite opposition. Indeed, growth and expansion were hallmarks of the Roman Empire that Jesus' followers were living under. Or, the kingdom is like a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Or, the kingdom is like a landowner who hires laborers throughout the day and pays them all a full wage. In those stories, we get a sense of the ethos of this new kingdom, a kingdom of justice and grace. But the kingdom connection for today's story is not so obvious. It's also an odd story in that it's about a merchant and a pearl. This parable is the only time either of those words appear in the biographies of Jesus. Most of Jesus' stories are highly relatable to his audience. A sower planting seeds, a woman working yeast into flour, 
a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son, all stories that would be easily accessible for those making a subsistence living, farming, or fishing. But apparently Jesus had an idea to communicate about his kingdom that was beyond the everyday experience of his hearers. And it seems to me that idea is beauty. Since Greco-Roman times, philosophers have talked about the transcendentals, properties of being that are seen as first concepts because they can't be logically traced back to something preceding them. For example, justice can be traced back to truth and goodness, but truth stands on its own. Nowadays, the four transcendents are commonly considered to be truth, unity, beauty, and goodness. For Christians and others, we see each of those fundamental attributes to be present in God. God who is one and who is the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty. And as we draw near to God, we grow to reflect those attributes of God's image that have been placed in us. Truth, goodness, and beauty. We have probably heard a lot about truth and goodness over the course of our church lives, but perhaps not so much about beauty. When we encounter rationales for the Christian faith, they often appeal to truth, a set of theological propositions rooted in Scripture or to goodness, a way of behaving in the world that brings justice, provision, and healing. And those are great, but in another sense they are incomplete. Beauty is also needed, because without beauty both truth and even goodness can turn ugly. I know it happens in our society too, but that kind of of ugliness has been writ large south of the border, where screaming protesters try to impose their version of morality on others, and political machinery is co-opted to impose a version of truth. If secular Americans were asked to list some adjectives to describe Christianity, it's hard to imagine that beautiful would appear on many lists. And yet the parable we are looking at today compares Jesus' kingdom to an exquisitely beautiful pearl. The beauty of the gospel may be a curative to some of the ugliness that has been paraded as truth and goodness. And even more, it may have a unique appeal in a secular postmodern society. Fifty years ago, for those of us who were around back then, if someone asked us about our faith, we would probably have shared a set of Bible facts with them. Back in those days, Billy Graham could attract crowds of tens of thousands who would come to hear him share truth from a book that a significant swath of society saw as authoritative. Nowadays, the response to Bible facts is less likely to be that of the Philippian jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? And more likely to echo Pilate, what is truth? In more recent times, our response to questions about faith might be to offer goodness 
instead of truth. The ethic of the Sermon on the Mount as a way to address the social ills that plague us. But in a pluralistic society, we may face challenges in, a, in agreeing about what goodness is. Yet in this parable, Jesus reminds us that his coming kingdom, a kingdom that he has already defined by its truth and its goodness, will also be characterized by beauty. Brian Zond writes that beauty has a way of sneaking past our defenses and speaking to us in unique ways. To a generation suspicious of truth claims and unconvinced by moral assertions, beauty has a surprising allure. And everything about Jesus Christ is beautiful. Where truth and goodness fail to win an audience, beauty may once again captivate and draw those it enchants into the kingdom of saving grace. So if this story reveals the beauty of Jesus' kingdom, what does it mean for us? Are we to sell everything in order to enter into it? Are we to emulate the Carlos I told you about? No, I don't think that is the point Jesus is making here. Sometimes, when I'm struggling with a passage, I find it helpful to ask the question, where do I see Jesus in this story? For example, in the story of the Good Samaritan, we see Jesus in the kindly foreign traveler who rescues, heals, comforts, and provides for the man in the ditch. We find comfort in knowing Jesus will also care for us, and we're given a challenging example of grace extended to the outsider. But if we look closely, we will also see Jesus in the man in the ditch, because Jesus was rejected, tortured, beaten, and left for dead. And because of that, we can know that he understands and identifies with us in all of our suffering. In today's parable, we see Jesus in the incomparable beauty of the pearl. Jesus, who elevated the downtrodden, who embraced those who had previously been excluded because of gender, race, or disability. Jesus, who taught beautiful ideas of grace, humility, and enemy love. Jesus, who was patient with the often thick-headed disciples, who was tender with the woman caught in adultery, and who, on the cross, forgave those who were crucifying him beauty indeed. But we also see Jesus in the merchant. Jesus is envisioning a kingdom that we can't yet see, but which is suffused with his beauty. And he is so determined to see that kingdom come that he is willing to give everything to make it happen. He's willing to give his very life. We are not the ones buying the pearl. Jesus has done that. But he invites us to join him in bringing the kingdom. And one of the ways we can do that is to find, celebrate, and reflect the beauty of Jesus. In November 2010, there was a flash mob performance of Handel's beautiful Hallelujah Chorus 
in the food court of the Seaway Mall in Niagara Falls, Ontario. A local photography company chronicled it to create a kind of video Christmas card, hoping they might get 50,000 views. When I checked this week, it has been seen 55 million times on their YouTube channel alone. I mentioned Brian Zond earlier, the author of the book Beauty Will Save the World. Zond talks about that event in the preface to his book and says, This random act of culture is a perfect metaphor for how the church should position itself in the world. Instead of angry protesters shaking our fist at a secular culture, we are to be joyful singers transforming the secular with the sacred. Instead of alienated separatists sequestered in Christian enclaves, we are to transform food courts into cathedrals by our song. The church is to sing the melody of Christ in the malls of meaninglessness and once again astonish the modern world with the beauty of the gospel. As I was thinking about how to tie up these ideas, I wondered how those of you hearing this message could use it. And that very question betrays a utilitarian point of view, a modern mindset that things are valuable only insofar as they are useful. But beauty, beauty stands against that mindset. Beauty is useless, and that's exactly why it is so useful. It invites us to stop, to step off the hamster wheel of utilitarian productivity, to contemplate, and to experience awe. Jesus says his kingdom is like an exquisite pearl, and we can help to bring the kingdom by seeking out and pondering beauty, beauty in God, beauty in the natural world, and beauty in the image of God present in every person we meet. We also bring the kingdom when we cooperate with God in God's work of transforming us and building us into the beautiful community, shaving off our critical rough edges, soothing our fears, and filling us with love. May we find and be that beauty this week. 